all throughout the Bible is this theme that righteousness is something that cannot be achieved. It can't be earned. There's no such thing as a righteous person. Remember Isaiah 64, verse 6? In God's eyes, our righteousness is as filthy rags. It's only after accepting God's payment for our guilt that he will look down on us and see his payment for our unrighteousness and then see righteousness. You see, folks, God's nature is one of perfection. He doesn't attempt to be perfect. He is perfect in every way. It's hard for us to imagine, but just as it's in our nature to be imperfect, it's God's nature to be perfect without a single flaw. And that's not something he aspires towards. It's something that he is. It's his physical nature. He can't help it. He's perfect in his wisdom, perfect in his power, perfect in his love, and unfortunately, perfect in his justice. And God doesn't invent the rules of justice. He simply follows them. They are what they are. Since he's perfect in his wisdom, he knows what perfect justice is. And since he's perfect in his justice, he's forced to follow out that justice. It's not a matter of punishment or revenge. It's a matter of debt. The wages of all sin is death. The imperfect must be removed from God's presence because God's perfection is impenetrable. That which is imperfect must die. But here's God's dilemma. While he's perfect in his justice, he's also perfect in his love. And God is incapable of being imperfect in any way. So what does God do? If everyone who is imperfect died physically and spiritually, and that's what perfect justice is, then God would no longer be perfect in his love. But if he forgave everyone, then he'd no longer be perfect in his justice. See what a dilemma being perfect is? He loves us because he's perfect in his love, but he's also perfect in his justice and perfect in his wisdom of justice. Sin, no matter what it is, it must be paid for with death. It's a debt that has to be paid. But here's where God's perfection in his wisdom intervenes between his perfect justice and perfect love. An imperfect being can escape justice if that imperfect being will offer a substitute to God that God will accept. And the only way God can accept a substitute is if that substitute is perfect. If the substitute is imperfect, then it's not worth anything. It's worth no more than you or I. It's like a balance transfer from one credit card to another. You can't transfer the balance of a maxed out credit card to another one if the other one's maxed out too. So God, perfect in his wisdom, established his own balance transfer. A human being with a zero sin debt could die and pay for the sin debt of all humanity. But then there's the other problem. Is there a human being with a zero sin debt? And even if there was one, would he be willing to accept the position of being mankind's balance transfer? The answer to both questions is an obvious no. Of course not. No human on earth could ever qualify to be a substitute, and no human on earth would ever accept the position of being one, unless that human was God himself in the flesh. Only God could be perfect in his justice enough to be a sinless human being all the days of his life. And only God could be perfect in his love enough to volunteer for this. And only God could be perfect in his wisdom enough to know how to achieve all of the above. Folks, have you ever wondered why it had to be a virgin birth? 
There are several reasons, but I'm just going to focus on two of the most important ones. God is one God, but because God exists in more than three dimensions, he exists in more than one person. To the best of our knowledge of the scripture, there appears to be three of them. We have a problem with that because of our limited three-dimensional thinking. But God is a single God with three persons in a higher dimension. One of those three persons separated himself from the other two to become a human being inside our dimension of reality. And the reason why it had to be a virgin birth is because when a man and a woman had sex and conceived, a brand new life is formed. But the second member of the Trinity was already alive. He wasn't human yet, but he was already living. This is how Jesus could be called God and be called the Son of God at the same time. All three members of the Trinity are the eternal God. No member is ranked higher or lower than the other. All three of them are God himself. But the second member of the Trinity lowered himself and entered into our dimension of reality to become a human being. He is literally God in the flesh. But because he was born of a virgin who was overshadowed by the Holy Spirit, the human she would conceive would literally be called the Son of God, just as Gabriel told her. That's one reason why it had to be a virgin birth. The second reason is because the imperfection of man, the mortality of man, the sin nature of man, all of that is in our genes, it's in our DNA, it's in our bloodline, and it's passed on through the male. Romans chapter 5 and 1 Corinthians chapter 15 points out that it's through Adam that all have sinned. All of us are sons and daughters of Adam. The human being who would be God in the flesh would have to be a direct creation of God to skip over all that. So that's why it had to be a virgin birth. Only God could be perfect in his justice enough to be a sinless human being all the days of his life. And only God could be perfect in his love enough to volunteer for this. And only God could be perfect in his wisdom enough to know how to achieve all of the above. And that's what the Gospels are all about. The entire mission of the Messiah's first visit to the planet Earth was one of taking upon the sin of the world. But the idea of a sinless substitute had to be ingrained in the minds of man before Jesus came so they would know what was to come. In the book of Genesis, we have the story of Abraham being asked by God to sacrifice his son Isaac. Now, God doesn't endorse child sacrifice. He was playing out a prophecy. And Abraham knew that's what he was doing. He told his son Isaac on the way to the altar that God would provide himself a sacrifice. And of course, when they got to the altar, God stopped Abraham from going all the way, and Abraham found a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. So Abraham took the ram and offered it up for a sacrifice instead, a sacrifice that God himself had provided. Abraham didn't have to give up anything. Then Abraham gave the place a name. He called it, In the Mount of the Lord it shall be seen. The Lord will provide. Two thousand years later, on that very spot, Jesus Christ died on the cross. The entire Bible is about Jesus Christ. It's all about God bridging the gap between himself and humanity. Humanity doesn't bridge the gap. We wouldn't be able to do it even if we knew how. That's what the rules laid out in the Old Testament for sin offering were all about. They were foreshadowing models of the balanced transfer that was to come. 
It was first established in the Garden of Eden. After Adam and Eve fell to sin, they both realized that they were naked and they were ashamed. So they sewed fig leaves together for garments. And that was the very first act of religion in earth history. Adam and Eve covering their own shame in their own way. But God came along and covered them with animal skins, showing them that only by the shedding of innocent blood would their sins be covered. The animals didn't do anything wrong. They didn't deserve this. The only command that God's ever given to animals is to be fruitful and multiply. And before Adam and Eve sinned, nothing in the entire universe had ever died. And the relationship between humanity and the animals was a lot different before the curse. Animals didn't exist for food because there was no death. After Adam sinned, an innocent creature had to die to cover his guilt. Try to imagine how much that hurt Adam to see that. That was God showing Adam a foreshadowing model of what was to come. In Exodus, God gave his Ten Commandments. And then later in the rest of the Old Testament, those Ten Commandments were amplified and explained. And then all of the rules and regulations of atonement was laid out for whenever any of those rules or regulations were broken. The rules laid out, the sacrificial lambs, the sacrificial scapegoats, they were all models that were foreshadowing the real sacrificial lamb that was to come, the Lamb of God. And those sacrifices were never meant to be taken lightly. Folks, I'm a huge animal lover, and I can't imagine living in a culture where I had to go out on a regular basis and slay a lamb as a sacrifice to pay for my sins. But the disturbing factor in all of that was the point. It wasn't supposed to be casual or routine. It was meant to be upsetting. Because one day, God himself would provide the ultimate sacrifice of innocence, his only son. Laid out in the Old Testament were even the rules and regulations of how it was to be done and where it was to be done and who it was to do it. They had a temple with a middle room called the Holy of Holies, because that was where the holiness of God would shine. And nobody was ever allowed to go in there because, um, well, standing in the holiness of God was a severe health hazard to human beings, if you know what I'm saying. Only the high priest could go in there, and even he couldn't go in there but once a year, after a strenuous routine of sin offerings and ceremonial washings. The door to that room was covered with a veil. But outside the Holy of Holies was another room, sometimes called the inner room or the holy place. Many Bible translations will call it the sanctuary. Then you had the outside with two courts. You had an inner court and an outer court. And people would come up to the outer court, and they were represented by priests to the high priest. And the high priest would go into the inner room, and then once a year into the Holy of Holies. With the temple, you would offer up a sacrificial lamb to pay the sin debt. Jesus becomes our new sacrificial lamb. One of his titles will be the Lamb of God. Now, if it stops there, that'd be one thing. But we find out later in the New Testament that after Jesus died, rose from the dead, and returned to heaven, he became our high priest. The high priest was the only one who could go into the Holy of Holies of the temple as an intercessor between God himself and the nation of Israel. Jesus became our high priest. The book of Hebrews calls him our high priest. So not only does Jesus pay our sin debt, but he also intercedes for you and me to God the Father in heaven.